discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And we are now discussing the fourth and final section of the sutta on Dhammanupassana, the contemplation of phenomena or the contemplation of mental objects. And in the last two classes we discussed the first division in this section that is the division on the five hindrances, the Panchanivarana. Now we come to the second section, which is on the contemplation of the five aggregates of clinging. That's the Panjupadana Kanda. Okay, first then I will read the passage of the sutta, then I will give the explanation. Okay, this is on page 21 in this wheel booklet. Okay, and further monks, a monk lives contemplating mental objects in the mental objects in regard to the five aggregates of clinging. And how does a monk live contemplating mental objects and the mental objects in regard to the five aggregates of clinging? Herein, a monk's, a monk say, understands, thus is material form, Thus is the arising of material form and thus is the disappearance of material form. Thus is feeling, thus is the arising of feeling and thus is the disappearance of feeling. Thus is perception, thus is the arising of perception and thus is the disappearance of perception. Thus are formations, or mental formations. Thus is the arising of formations, and thus is the disappearance of formations. Thus <coughs> is consciousness, thus is the arising of consciousness, and thus is the disappearance of consciousness. Okay, now these five con uh, aggregates, according to Buddhism, are what constitutes the person or the individual. Usually, when we think about ourselves, we always frame our ideas and thoughts about ourselves around the notion of I, me, myself. And through repeatedly thinking in this way, we give rise to the notion or the conception that we have some kind of substantial, solid, lasting basis of personal identity within ourselves, what we label as myself, my person, my um, soul, or my ego. But according to the Buddha's teaching, when we see our personality or our individuality as it truly is with right understanding, then we can never discover any kind of solid, permanent, substantial 
basis of personal identity, something that we truly and definitively and permanently are. Rather, Buddha investigates the personality and discovers and reveals the existence of five types of ingredients or constituents that make up the individual. And these are called the five aggregates of clinging, Panjubadana Kanda. They are called the five aggregates of clinging because these are the things that we cling to with desire and attachment and with the wrong view of self. And these five aggregates are what I have listed on the blackboard. Though I've explained them in previous discussions, now I'll go through them briefly again. First, we should say that of these five aggregates, one of them is material, matter. Which one is that? <laughs> the aggregate of material form, rupakandhya. And the other four are mental, non-material. That's feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. The aggregate of matter or materiality comprises, actu <coughs> comprises actually all matter, both internal and external. The word aggregate, kanda, means a heap or a collection. So this is like a comprehensive category which includes every type of element pertaining to that particular category. So the aggregate of material form comprises every type of matter in the universe. And of course, of the, all of this matter in the universe, that which is most important to each of us is this particular conglomerate that we call my body, or this physical body that we take to be myself. Okay, now the Buddha further distinguishes within each of these aggregates different components. So the aggregate of material form includes first the division into the primary element, primary elements, which are the four Mahabhutas, the four great elements, and then the types of secondary or derived matter. The primary elements, of course, are the earth element, which is like this, in relation to the body, it's the solid components of the body. We see this in flesh, bones, muscles, the inner organs, and so on. Then there's the liquid element, the water element, which we see in the blood, pus, phlegm, and all of the liquid components of the body. Then there is the fire element, which is the heat of the body and the air element, the wind, or the air, the oxygen that we inhale. 
and the winds and air that exist in the body. Then derived from these four primary elements, there are various types of secondary material phenomena. According to the, the Abhidhamma mentions 24 types of derived matter, but the most important types are the matter that make up the sense organs, the five sense organs, and the matter that makes up the sense objects, the objects of sight, it's the visible forms, sounds, smell, taste. But the tangible object is considered not to be a secondary type of matter, but rather what we touch is actually the combination of the primary elements. Since when we touch anything, we feel the actual physical elements that make up the tangible object. Okay, so that's, I think, sufficient to know these types of material phenomena. If one wants, you can study the others <laughs> from any of the books on the Abhidhamma. <coughs> okay, then the second aggregate is the aggregate of feelings. Now, feeling is the particular, it's a chaitasika, a mental factor. It's that mental factor which has the function of experiencing the effective tone or quality of the object, whether the object is a enjoyable object in which case there usually arises pleasure, pleasant feeling. If it's a disagreeable object, then there usually arises painful feeling. If it's an indifferent object, then there usually arises a neutral feeling. I say usually because there's not a hard and fast connection between the quality of the object and the way the feeling arises. For example, if somebody is in a very bad mood and then they might see a beautiful sunset, <laughs> but the beauty of the sunset might just intensify their feeling of sorrow instead of giving them pleasure and happiness then they feel more sad when they see the beautiful sunset. Or if somebody, again, if somebody is in an upset frame of mind and they hear some beautiful music, then instead of feeling, getting a pleasant feeling, the beautiful music might also, it might make them upset so they feel unhappy. On the other hand, somebody who has trained the mind can look at both desirable and undesirable objects with neutral feeling, with equanimity. Okay, so anyway, feeling comprises all these different ways in which we have some kind of affective experience of the object, either pleasant, painful, or neutral feeling. Then the third aggregate is also a chaitasika, 
a mental factor. This is the mental factor called, in Pali, sanya, perception. Perception is that mental factor which has the characteristic of noting the object or noting the qualities of the object. Perception identifies, you could say it discriminates, distinguishes, classifies, categorizes. It has all of these functions of distinguishing the features of the object in some way. And perception is the factor which is particularly important in serving as a basis for memory and for recognition. Like the reason we are able to recognize, say, a person that we've seen before, even if we've seen a person only once, but when sanya goes into operation, sanya distinguishes certain features of the person that we see. He has a head of such and such a shape, he wears glasses, doesn't wear glasses, such and such colored skin, he looks about such and such age. So then when at a later occasion we see that person, then we're able to recognize, ah, I met that per person before, maybe five years earlier. But how do we recognize? Because sanya, perception, distinguishes certain features of that person's face and physique. And so that serves as a basis for memory. Then the Buddha, when he explains or analyzes what is perception, then he distinguishes six classes of perception according to the object, the object is perceived. There is perceptions of forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible sensations, and perception of purely mental objects. Okay, then the fourth aggregate is the aggregate of mental formations. In Pali it's called the Sankara Kanda. The word Sankara has many different or several different meanings depending on the different contexts in which it occurs. But here we should understand that it means that it's a kind of umbre umbrella term which comprises all the different volitional and emotional and even the different intellective aspects of experience. In the suttas, when the Buddha explains what is meant by the aggregate of the mental formations, he says it's the six types of volition, chaitana. That is volition regarding form, sound, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mental ideas, or mental objects. But according to the teachers of the Abhidhamma, the Sankarakanda includes not only volition, but all the different mental factors that are mentioned by the Buddha throughout the suttas, except for feeling, perception, 
and consciousness. So within the aggregate of mental formations, the most important, practically speaking, are on the one hand the unwholesome states, which are the defilements, and then the virtuous mental factors, the purifying factors. like the, for example, the seven factors of enlightenment, the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, and so on. So the mental formations aggregate, like this is, we could say that this is the battlefield of the mind. <laughs> like this is where the struggle is waged between the defilements headed by greed, hatred, and ignorance, and the virtuous purifying factors headed maybe by mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So we can say non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom. Okay, so that is the fourth aggregate. Then the fifth aggregate is the aggregate of consciousness, which is called in Pali the Vijnana Kanda, and that comprises, according to the Buddha's analysis, these six types of consciousness distinguished according to the sense faculty through which it arises. That is the visual consciousness, which has the function of seeing forms. And I should explain to distinguish consciousness from perception, since the two come very close together. But perception is a particular mental factor, an associate or companion of consciousness, which has the function simply of dis distinguishing the qualities or features of the object. Whereas consciousness is, say, the general awareness which operates through a particular sense base, making possible experience of an object through that sense base. So there's visual consciousness which arises based on the eye, then there's ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and then the sixth is called mano-vijnana. That's mind consciousness, mental consciousness. The consciousness which either thinks about any of the five sense objects, or which entertains its own types of objects. For example, concepts, abstract ideas, judgments, images, fantasies, all of this is the work of mano-vinyana.
and also I should say that insight, understanding also occurs through mano-vinyana. And though I have now explained all of these five aggregates somewhat as though one were taking apart an automobile and laying out and saying, here is the body, this is the chasis, this is the carburetor, this is the axle, and you know, just you can take apart an automobile and lay out the parts and show a student of automobile engineering each part. But in fact, for the, when we examine the individual or the personality, we shouldn't think that these parts are just, or that these aggregates are just abstract, distinguishable notions which somehow can be separated from each other. But in actual experience, all five are operating together. They are, we say in technical terminology, that they're anyamanyapachyas. That means that they're mutual conditions for each other. Like if I hear, for example, a bus or a truck going down the street outside, At that moment of hearing it, there's of course this physical body with the ear that belongs to the aggregate of rupa. Then if it's a very loud rumbling sound and I'm trying to (laughs) continue with the lecture and the roar of the engine threatens to drown out my voice, then there will come a feeling, a particular feeling, which is, <laughs> but, yeah, painful feeling. Though I will then struggle to <laughs> overcome the painful feeling and develop equanimous, equanimous feeling. Then I'm distinguishing, ah, that's the sound of a bus, or that sound is too loud. That's that's perception, then there is some volition, maybe wishing, I wish that vehicle would go by already, or I wish that driver would put some muffler over his engine, then that kind of thought or wish is what? It's a mental formation, a sankara. And then there is, of course, the being aware of all of this, that is consciousness. And so we should understand that the five aggregates always function together in experience as an organic unity. And the Buddha undertakes this explanation of the aggregates in order to show that we can account completely for the nature of experience without having to bring in any kind of permanent self or ego entity as somehow standing behind all of these five aggregates and governing them from within. In fact, what is most obvious about the five aggregates when one examines them with insight is that they can't be perfectly controlled, but they have their own laws which they obey, often contrary to our wishes. Okay, this will be the explanation of the five aggregates. If there are any questions about the explanation that I've just given, then please ask them at this point.
Okay, then if there aren't any questions, then I will go on now to explain the passage as a means of practicing satipatthana, that is in connection with the contemplation which is being undertaken here, dhammanupassana, the contemplation of phenomena. Okay, maybe I can get into this by raising a question, a couple of questions. Now, earlier in the Satipatthana Sutta, we saw that the Buddha explains Kāyānupāsana, the contemplation of the body, and the body obviously belongs to material form. Then the Buddha has a separate section, the second section on the contemplation of feeling, Vedanānupāsana. And then a separate section on Chītānupāsana, which is state of mind or consciousness. So then the question might come up, what is the difference between contemplating material form here and contemplating the body under kāyānupāsana? What is the difference between contemplating feelings under vedanānupāsana and contemplating feeling here? And what is the difference between contemplating Chitanupasana, the state of mind, and the contemplation of consciousness here. Okay, in, my, in the way I understand the difference, I take it that when one is practicing, say, the contemplation of the body, then one has a particular physical object which one is using as one's primary means of attention, one's primary base of attention in order to develop a particular way of observing or contemplating the body. Or rather I should say some of the exercises in Kayanupasana are undertaken primarily for developing a strong base of mindfulness and concentration like the anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing. Then other exercises under kāyānupāsana are intended to develop understanding of the body from different angles, different points of view. Like for example the contemplation of the impurities in the body, the different organs and tissues, the 32 parts, the contemplation of the four elements, the contemplation of the corpses and the cemetery. Also, the contemplation of feeling, I take it, I understand, has the purpose of developing a kind of very minute and detailed uh, awareness of the different feelings that arise in different occasions of experience. And then the Chitanupasana, the contemplation of states of mind, has the purpose of developing an awareness of the different types of states of consciousness that arise. And I take it that all of these three contemplations, though of course each one, any one of them can really be pursued all the ways to the final goal, 
but generally I say that they have a more preparatory role but I would understand that in the contemplation of the five aggregates that this takes place after the yogi or the meditator has developed a strong base of sati, of mindfulness and the strong base of concentration on the base or of that foundation of mindfulness and concentration then he's able to turn his attention to investigate the personality or the individuality systematically in this way of distinguishing it or disintegrating it into its different components by way of the five aggregates. It is using this calm, concentrated, mindful mind as the instrument he will examine first the body contemplating that this is material form the rupakanda then he will look into the mental side of experience and see the different feelings and c contemplate that all of these feelings belong to the Vedanakanda, the aggregate of feeling. Then he will look into the different perceptions arising and consider that these perceptions belong to the perception aggregate, the Sanyakanda. Then he'll examine the mental formations or volitions. Consider that these belong to the Sankara Kanda and then of course he'll be he'll take make recognition of the consciousness of all this as belonging to the aggregate of consciousness even this contemplation of the five aggregates could even arise on the basis of something like Anapanasati which belongs to the uh, rupa, to the kāyānupāsana contemplation. For example, when the meditator has become well concentrated on the breathing, then he might contemplate in the act of breathing. There is this body which is breathing in and out. This body breathing in and out that is the rupa kanda the aggregate of matter then as he's contemplating in out in out different feelings will arise sometimes if the concentration is good then pleasant feelings or neutral equanimous feelings if there are pains in the body then there'll be painful feelings arising or if there's disappointment with his success and concentration then there'll be painful feelings so we'll consider that all of these feelings belong to the Vedanakanda then there is the perceiving of the in-breath and out-breath perceiving of the different sensations in the act of breathing that belongs to the Sanyakanda then, for example, the volition or will to keep the mind on the breath, keep the mind on the breath, the mindfulness of the breath, the observation of the different fluctuations in the breath, well, actually that observation would be like the sanya kind of, the um, mindfulness, say the purity of mind that accompanies the in and out breathing, the calm and tranquility of mind, all of these will be states belonging to the Sankara Kanda. And of course the consciousness of this object of the breath belongs to the aggregate of consciousness. 
So in this way one can distinguish the five aggregates even just based on the simple act of breathing in and out. But then in the exercise the Buddha says that the meditator understands not only such as material form, but he also knows the arising of material form and the disappearance of material form. And the same with each of the other aggregates. So that is, in this contemplation of the five aggregates, there takes place not only a distinguishing of the different components of the individual, but also a grasp or a penetration of the conditional nature of the personality. Technically, we call this distinguishing of the different aggregates that make up the personality. There's a term that's used the term that's used for this distinguishing of the mental and material components of the personality. Nama Rupa Paricheda, the distinguishing of mind and matter. One analyzes the individuality into the five aggregates and one sees that four aggregates belong to nama or the mental side of experience and one aggregate is rupa and so one sees the personality as a composite of mind and matter. Then when one investigates and penetrates the conditions that's called pachaya parigaha. You could say the comprehension of conditions, the grasping of the conditional nature of things. And so in the case of material form, one considers the arising of material form, how this body comes to be. And when the mind is very subtle, then one can apply the knowledge that's gained from the suttas to see that this body comes into being from causes that have been set in motion in past and earlier lives, especially from because of the ignorance and the craving for existence in the past, that craving has given rise to various karmas and through that craving, ignorance and karma, this particular physical body has come into being. And then in the present life, this body is sustained by food. It originates, repeatedly re-originates through food. And if there is no food, then the body disintegrates and dies. So one could see, even if one suspends this idea about karma, ignorance, craving, as something that one can't immediately see, but we can immediately see that this body, even from the time conception takes place in the mother's womb, the body needs a continual input of nutriment. If that supply of nutriment is cut off, then the body cannot survive. Then also the arising and disappearance of form can be understood in terms of moment-to-moment -moment experience observing 
the repeated arising and passing away of the material phenomena of the body. So when the yogi focuses on the body and observes the physical phenomena, then he sees repeatedly these material solid, substantial, lasting physical body, when one investigates with very finely tuned mindfulness, then one sees it's like a string of beads. You know, if you look at it from a distance, it looks like a solid piece of rope. But if you look at it close up, it's just made up of many little beads. And so these material phenomena are just momentary existence arising and perishing, but they arise and perish in a sequence and so it appears to be solid and lasting. But looked at very closely, one sees just this constant arising and passing of the material elements. Then there is feeling, which also one can see it's arising independence upon its condition, certain conditions. The fact that feeling occurs at all, of course, is dependent upon the fact that we've acquired this particular body. And so feeling, too, body into being. But in the immediate present, feeling arises constantly through what is called contact, passa. That is when there is a coming together of consciousness with an object through a sense faculty, that coming together of the three is called contact. And simultaneously with contact, a feeling arises. If it's a good contact, then a pleasant feeling will usually arise. If it's a contact with a disagreeable object, then a painful feeling will arise. If it's a contact with an indifferent object, then a neutral feeling will arise. But for feeling to arise, there must be contact as the immediate condition there must also be the sense faculties, the objects, and so on. So feeling comes into being in dependence on conditions. And then feeling also is, const is subject to constant arising and disappearance. When one examines the feeling, even an apparently lasting, enduring feeling. That feeling breaks up and dissolves into sequence of just momentary units of feeling, each one arising and passing away in rapid succession. Then perception also has its arising through conditions, that is the sense faculty, the object, and perception from moment to moment, it's arising and passing away. The mental formations also arise from various conditions. Also, they are subject to constant arising and passing away. And consciousness as well arises in dependence on the sense faculties, the objects, so it's conditioned and it's also arising and passing away. 
Okay, and then the Buddha again attaches to this section or to this exercise and contemplation that same refrain that follows each of the other contemplations. Thus he lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects internally, that is, he contemplates the five aggregates within himself, or he lives contemplating mental objects and mental objects externally, that is, he could also consider that all other living beings are made up of these same five aggregates, but there's no self or soul or ego entity externally in any external being. Or he contemplates both together, one after another. Or he lives contemplating origination factors and dissolution factors. I take it that that's basically the same as observing the arising of form, feeling, and so on, observing the passing away of form, feeling, and so on. Or his mindfulness is established with the thought, with the observation that mental object, or let's say phenomena exist, that one is just considering these five aggregates as instances of bare phenomena. That they're just things that exist that occur, that they're not something to be attached to as I, mine, or myself, but just phenomena that occur through their causes and conditions. And by so contemplating, that brings a deepening of knowledge and mindfulness and thus he lives detached and clings to nothing in the world and thus a monk lives contemplating mental objects and the mental objects in regard to the five aggregates of clinging. Yeah, because I'm going to stop right here. For <laughs> Many times you refer to he contemplates, he observes, yeah. he examines, he is mindful. Yeah. Who is the contemplator? <laughs> who, who is the door? Who is the seer? Who is the examiner? Is this outside the five aggregates? Yeah, the use of what we call personal pronouns is a kind of shorthand device for referring to what is actually the composite of the five aggregates themselves. So when we say he examines the five aggregates, what is examining is actually, you know, speaking in what's called Dhamma terminology what is examining are factors within the five aggregates themselves. Of course, each say, set of aggregates is different and unique, like the aggregates that make up this person are different from the aggregates that make up that person. So let's take the case of person A, who's investigating the five aggregates. Okay, so that is a particular, A is a particular compound of the five aggregates and when he's when he is examining then these set of mental factors are focused on the elements of the personality so there is in this case there's a succession of <coughs> acts of mental mind consciousness mano vinyana going on and connected with that mano vinyana, that mind consciousness, there will be 
a particular set of mental formations, mindfulness, energy, to have the mental energy of contemplation, a certain con- degree of concentration, that's also a mental formation, uh, the volition to contemplate, the discernment, which is actually the mental factor of wisdom. And so there's this consciousness with its constellation of mental factors, with its constellation of mental formations, then there's perception and feeling, and it's all occurring in a particular body, and it's all examining the constituents of that set of five aggregates. <laughs> the aggregates are observing themselves. Right, right. And the use of personal pronouns like I contemplate, he <coughs> contemplates, you contemplate, these are just convenient ways of speaking. Since we can't say <laughs> a set of aggregates 0512 <laughs> <dash> X <laughs> is contemplating itself. <laughs> now the observer is the observer. Right, right. Though at one particular, strictly speaking though, at a a microscopic moment, a state of consciousness cannot observe itself, since when it's observing, then it can't be observed. It's somewhat like if one knows the use of a computer, like if you're doing a check for viruses (laughs) and you have the system is working, the computer can observe all the programs, (laughs) but it can't observe the operating system. Because the operating system is what is making the computer operate. (laughs) So to examine the operating system, one has to transfer the operating system to another disk and then observe that objectified version of the operating system. (laughs) So it's in the same way that one can't observe, or the particular act of consciousness which is observing cannot actually simultaneously observe itself. Though this is from a very uh, microscopic standpoint, in terms of practical experience it seems to be so. Like if one has anger in the mind, when one looks into the mind, it seems that one is mindful of that anger which is presently existing. But actually, when there is mindful observation, then there cannot be precisely at that same moment actual anger in the mind. It's just that the anger which arose immediately before, it's somewhat like a boat going through the water leaves a wake of waves. And so that anger leaves its reverberations or its wake in the mind. And so what one observes is that those reverberations. So if one goes on observing anger, 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 then through the repeated building up of that mindfulness, then even the disposition towards anger subsides. Okay, any further questions? Because I won't go further <laughs> with the suit. Usually we think in terms of subject-object as though the subject were something uh, existent in itself, apart from the act of experience, 
and as though the object were something separate and distinct from the act of experience. But both subject and object are, I mean, they're useful terms for distinguishing different aspects of the act of experience. But what we would say is that the subject of the experience would be the composite of the four mental aggregates. Of course, the body does not itself, rupa does not itself directly experience, actually experience an object. So the subject would be the four mental aggregates, then the object would be one of the five physical sense objects or some type of mental object. And even this object is also in process of arising and passing away. All volition creates karma. Not exactly. In practical terms, in terms of everyday experience, volition is creating karma. But technically, to really explain that, or to answer that question adequately, one has to go into a rather technical discussion. Maybe I can hone the question. Yes. Okay. The Buddha in his lifetime did many things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Why did they not create karma? Yeah. Now, volitional actions create karma for anyone except an arahant, including the Buddha within the category of arahant. The arahant is one who has destroyed all defilements. Because what gives volitional or volitions the capacity to function as karma is the tendencies of ignorance and tanha craving which are lying within the mental continuum. As long as there is ignorance and craving within the depths of the mind, then the volitional actions that one performs, bad and good actions, become, they acquire this karmic potency, this ability to produce results in the future that correspond to their own ethical quality. But when ignorance and craving are eradicated, when the mind becomes completely purified, then the enlightened person can engage in many activities which are all from a worldly standpoint we say that they're good activities but they don't generate any karma, not even wholesome karma. Technically these activities are called kiriya, which also comes from the same verbal root meaning doing or action. But they're activities which are they're compared to the flight of birds through the sky. They don't leave any tracks. The birds don't leave any tracks on the sky. <laughs> any additional quality? Any <laughs> additional uh, questions? Okay, then we will conclude for today and continue next Thursday. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.